Our morning service was a liturgical service, and a liturgical service simply means that we participated in readings, the scripture readings and um, a statement, a call and response time. And it was a really beautiful moment just to sit in some space and to celebrate Easter through a liturgy. And the liturgy uh, is something that has been developed over hundreds of years, actually. And so we were able to participate in the remembrance of Easter, not only just how we'd like to do it today, but also how we have celebrated, we meaning the Christian church, have celebrated Easter over a long period of time. I believe there are some extra of the handouts that we Uh, printed up for this morning that I've placed back there. There may only be one or two of them, but if you're interested in seeing that outline, please make sure that you let me know if if we've run out on the back table, and I can get that into your hands. And it can be a wonderful devotional moment to read through the prayers, because the prayers uh, that we read this morning are actually quite beautiful and actually quite moving and touching about liberation and freedom and about sin and how God has redeemed us from all of that, and to do that in a call and response time is a beautiful thing. So if you uh, would like one of those and it's not available, please make sure that you email me, and I'll make sure that I get that to you. This celebration that we're in on Easter is a little bit of an odd celebration if you think about it. It is the holiest of all the uh, holidays in the Christian calendar, Many, many messages, this, this day as well as uh, days throughout history, have been preached and taught about if this day didn't happen, if the resurrection didn't happen, then all of what we do within Christianity, all of our faith, is in vain. It's futile. It's a waste of time. And so today marks the celebration of the most important event in Christian history. And it also marks the, what we would consider to be the most event in history period. But if we stop and pause for just a moment to think about it, this is a very odd event. Um, This is a very odd season. Let's go back for just two days and ask ourselves the question, what was the world like and what were the disciples like and what were the followers of Jesus like two days ago? And two days ago, this is what it looked like. It looked like people running away from something that they thought was important, something that they thought was going to be revolutionary, something that they thought was going to be life-changing and life-transformational. And they had laid down everything. They had laid down their nets. They had laid down their lives. They had picked up all sorts of teachings from Jesus and new commissions and new ways of living and new ways of acting, all because they knew and believed that something radical was happening in the world and was going to happen through this person named Jesus. And what happens on Good Friday? The Messiah the anointed one, the one that was going to bring this great redemption, dies. Now, you have, to, you have to get into the mood of Good Friday to understand that that is the, ultimately the image of the Christian faith two days ago. Two days ago, we're looking at heels, people running away, fleeing, denying, saying, I don't know anything about this. In fact, can you imagine for a moment being a part of a movement where this leader of yours, you believed in that leader's message. You were committed to this person's calling. You were on board fully with the revolution, and you're ready to go. And then all of a sudden, out of almost nowhere, or as a result of disillusionment, your leader dies. And what are you left with? Are you 
the winner of this revolution? Have you beaten back all of the evils of the world? Have you overcome all of the things that you said that you were going to overcome, that your leader said that we were all going to overcome? No. Two days ago, this was a losing team. Two days ago, all of us, every single one of us, who said that we were a part of something revolutionary turned out actually to be losers. And so two days later, on the third day, as we say, two days later, something radical, radical has happened. And if it wasn't for today, this is what churches should look like. Completely empty. What are you doing here? I mean, the, the leader of our movement has died. What are we doing here? The fact that we're celebrating this day, the fact that we're here, the fact that we filled chairs and pews all over the world and listening to sermons and teachings and singing songs of celebration, something radical has happened. I found this article in The Guardian by Giles Frazier, and I love what his quote kind of sums up the emotion of this time. Losers can discover something about themselves that winners cannot ever appreciate. That they are loved and wanted simply because of who they are and not because of what they achieve. Even though on the very day of Good Friday, we became losers, something radical shifted in that identity of being a loser. That despite it all, raw humanity is glorious and wonderful entirely worthy of love. What's happening in this season and the celebration that we have in our calendar is the coming together of two very opposite, disparate, not related things, and they come together on this day in something that is almost indescribable, incomprehensible. Um, in fact, maybe we should sing some songs that use those words. My title today is What God Has Joined Together what God has joined together. And ultimately, what God has joined together, the very first image that we see from this image of Good Friday to today is that death and life actually come together. The idea that the disciples and Jesus himself had to go through a crucifixion, had to go through a death, ultimately meant and ultimately was fused with the kind of life that Jesus was initiating. Now think about this for a second. If you were a follower of Jesus and you said, I will go where you go, wherever you, whatever you teach, I will follow. However you tell me to do, I will obey. And then he dies on a cross. Are you ready to continue to follow in that line? <laughs> no, you're out of there. Peace out. I'm done. But the resurrection to new life means that not just that death has been overcome, which is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, but that death and life actually have come together in a whole new way of living into this world. The idea and the concept that to die to self is to find life. If anyone wants to find his life, he must first lose it. And so the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus come together in this grand narrative of bringing something together that we think should be a part. And the disciples think, once death happens, that's it, I'm out of here. But the resurrection says, no, death is actually a big part of the grand narrative and the grand agenda of what Jesus is doing. 
In fact, death is something that all of us should actually embrace. We like to celebrate this day because it's Resurrection Sunday. But by celebrating Resurrection Sunday, we also have to recognize that we're also celebrating his death. And to become like him means to also enter into that same death, to die to self, to completely empty ourselves as Christ has emptied himself. So, my message today is what God has joined together. I'd like to take a look at a few things that God has brought together through the resurrection, through this entire season of Good Friday, that very poignant, visceral Saturday of nothingness between the Friday and the Sunday. And then, of course, today. I'll finish up with this quote uh, from Giles. This is revealed precisely at the greatest point of dejection. The resurrection is not a conjuring trick with bones. It is a revelation that love is stronger than death, that human worth is not indexed to worldly success. And in many ways, what that death represents is a dying to that worldly success, a dying to that self, a dying to that self-pursuit, so that life can happen. What God has joined together is that life and that death together. Our passage is Luke chapter 24, and I'll read um, a portion of it. If you'd like to go there, you can on your phones or in your Bibles. And then we'll share a few things, reflections of what God has joined together through this day. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood between them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? What a beautiful phrase. Why do you look? for the living among the dead. He is not here, everybody. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other and the others with them who told this to the apostles. Notice the women are being sent to the apostles. N.T. Wright says that the women were the apostles to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Now that same day, two of them, of these disciples, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened, and they talked and discussed these things with each other. And, excuse me, as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked among them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? which is either a facetious or sarcastic question. They stood, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? Jesus asked. I love it. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. 
But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe that all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. First thing that God has joined together is the old and the new. God is joined together in the resurrection, the old and the new. Notice this passage, Luke chapter 24, verse 27. At the beginning, with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Oftentimes, in thinking about the resurrection and thinking about Jesus, we are moved sometimes to consider that because of Jesus and because of the resurrection, the old is no longer necessary. But here it is very, very clear that it is only through the telling of Moses and the prophets what God has been doing for a very, very long time through which we can understand all of this. Now remember, these people, these disciples had seen this. They witnessed. They were telling Jesus, I mean, like, are you not the only one? Like, get a clue. Why weren't you here? Were you not paying attention? And they understood these events, but something wasn't clicking for them. They were not connecting what they were seeing right here, right now, with things that were going on in the past, with the whole history and story of Moses and the prophets. So the first thing that happens in the resurrection, uh, one of many things that happens when what God brings together, is he brings together that old, and he puts it together with that new. The past and the future come together in the person of Jesus. And we d it happens in two specific areas. The first is through Scripture. This story, part of the reason why at Spark we've been taking a long time to go through Genesis and Exodus, and we'll be going through Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, um, and it'll be like, you know, the year 3000 before we get to Revelation. Part of the reason why we're doing that is we are recognizing, we understand that who we are as people, the faith that we have inherited, is not the faith that started 2,000 years ago. This is not a faith that started 2,000 years ago with Jesus. This is a faith that goes back thousands and thousands and thousands of more years beyond that. And part of what we need to understand with this resurrection is Jesus describes to these disciples all of the things that has happened to him through Moses and the prophets is you and I are deeply, spiritually, radically connected to those people way back then. And in order for us to understand what's going on in the resurrection, we need to reclaim those stories. We need to tell those stories. We need to embrace those stories and push all of that forward into the future as we live out this beautiful resurrection. It is a hard thing for us Christians because we have Old Testament and New Testament. And it would be wonderful for us to see that what God is doing in and through Jesus is the same thing that God has been doing in and through the past patriarchs and our ancestors in the heritage of our faith. And the reason why that's important is because that's the same thing that God is now doing right here and amongst us 
today. By bringing the old and the new together, we recognize that the thing that happened then is the thing that can also happen today. That is a radical message. That thing that happened to Jesus 2,000 years ago is something that can still happen today? Yes, because the old and the new are coming together. Spiritually speaking, for those of you who are trying to make sense of your own story, trying to make sense of your own Good Friday, trying to make sense of those tragedies or those sicknesses or those illnesses or those injustices that happened to you, this is a beautiful, beautiful message because what's happening to you right now is also deeply connected to a past and has a connection to the future. In the resurrection, all of those things get pulled together. And though you may be experiencing loss and pain and frustration, disillusionment, and like the disciples, you might actually just want to run away. Like the disciples, you might actually think, I have no idea what this world is anymore because of these things that have been happening in my life, because of these tragedies, because of these illnesses. You might be feeling that as well. The resurrection says the story that you're living now is not the story of now. It's the story of God's redemption, healing, restoration all throughout history. And we can infuse the now with what happened then to then give us a greater perspective for how new life, new resurrection, and new meaning can come in the future. I hope that God bringing the old and the new together can actually give you a sense of hope for whatever tragedy we are feeling and experiencing right here, right now. What God has joined together in the resurrection, the past, the present, and the future. The old, the now, and the new. All of that comes together, and we get to experience that right here, right now. The second thing that comes together in the resurrection are the facts and meaning. Every single year around this time, you are going to get inundated with a barrage of statements about what actually happened and how much do you know Jesus. It's going to come through the TV, it's going to come through the internet, it's going to come through Facebook, it's going to come through skeptics and people that are writing articles about the facts of history. Um, so I thought we would give ourselves a little bit of a quiz. Where was Jesus born? Very nice. Next question. What did Jesus and the disciples eat at the Last Supper? Bread and wine. Very nice. Number three, what does the name Jesus mean? Messiah, Son of God. Oh, sorry. The Lord saves. It means the Lord saves. Number four, what was Jesus' primary language? This is going to be a difficult one because Danielle and I have been studying with some friends in Jerusalem, and they actually think his primary language was Hebrew. We'll t we can talk about that later. But anyway, they say that it's Aramaic. Wonderful. Good job. What was Jesus' first miracle? I, I can see you all got that one right. Okay, excellent. Number six, how old was Jesus when he was baptized? 30, very nice. Number seven, what temptations did Jesus resist during his 40 days in the desert? All of the above. Acclaim, earthly power, food, etc. Number eight, how many people did Jesus raise from the dead during his ministry? Three. Three, good. Oh, nice and strong, powerful, very nice. Number nine, who warned Pontius Pilate not to crucify Jesus? Very nice. You guys are fantastic. 
Uh, number 10, according to the Bible, where did Jesus ascend into heaven? Uh, Mount Sinai, Mount of Olives, Garden of Gethsemane, or Calvary? Oh, this one's, this one's tricky. Mount of Olives. Okay, for all of you who got, num- got 10, who scored 10, I love this. It says, um, expert, impressive, you could have been an expert on finding Jesus. Like, why wasn't I? I could have gotten paid for that. Okay, so anyway, that's the data. That's the information. That's the stuff that we need to know. That's the quiz that you take. That's all of the history and the science and the research. All of that stuff um, is what we know and understand. But is that the full story? The facts. Is that really all that it is? Sociologists and historians and philosophers have considered some shifts and some changes in our cultures. Um, There were some times that People called pre-modern, the medieval age, a modern era during the 17th and 18th century, which is often called the Enlightenment, where new understandings and new rationalisms, new ways of thinking come about. And we are now entering into an age that some people are calling post-modern. In other words, we don't exactly know what it is, we just know it's not modern anymore. From this shift... All of those facts, all those details, all that history that we have down, all the understanding and the data that we can collect, something shifted and and happened from this pre-modern era to this dawning era of new science. New rationalizations, empiricisms, senses, the idea that you can think with your senses and know and understand how this world works, how this world behaves, started to capture our imaginations. And here's the deal. It worked. It worked brilliantly. N.T. Wright is famous for saying, I don't want a postmodern dentist. I, somebody who just feels his way through, you know. What you want is somebody who understands empirically, data-driven, how things actually work. And the reason why we have modern technology and the reason why we have the medical advancements that we have, the reason why we have all this is because we have been able to figure out how to understand this world in very specific scientific terms. And and we're in Silicon Valley. We are fully inheritors of these ideas and ideals. A couple years ago, I actually gave a message on the resurrection detailing and outlining some of those historical facts. And I... And doing that kind of research and doing that kind of argumentation in what's known in Christian circles as apologetics um, is something that comes out of that era, comes out of that understanding that if we do the right research, if we do the right scientific study, if we do the right history, then we can actually nail down all the reasons and the arguments and the rationales for why the resurrection is true, historically true, actually true, flesh and blood, molecules and cells true. But there's some shifts and changes that happened. During this era, by the way, the idea that what we can know and what we can understand comes through our senses, what you can see, what you can touch, what you can smell, what you can hear, what you can taste. And anything, therefore, that doesn't come through these senses is considered nonsense. And so into our world emerges this whole separation of two worlds. That which is sensical, rational, detailed and data-driven. And the other world, which is nonsense. 
meaning, metaphor, story, narrative, myth. One of the ways in which this is described, if you read some of the literature, is through the story of an umpire. A, there's three different types of umpires, according to this philosophy. The first kind of umpire says, there are balls and there are strikes, and I call them as they are. The second kind of umpire says, there are balls and there are strikes, and I call them as I see them. What they are, how I see them. See that subtle philosophical shift. And the third kind of umpire says, there are balls and there are strikes, and they ain't nothing until I call them. <laughs> Which means I am now creating the world that is true in front of me. That's a nice way of summarizing some of the ways in which people are thinking about this world. What is, and how do I understand it, and what kind of meanings do I bring to it? And you will hear in this season that the idea of a resurrection from various scholars from all over the place are going to share with you, you know what, it's really not that important if it actually happened, if there's actual history, if you can give all the arguments and apologetics for why it happened. Because what's most important is that it's a parable, it's a metaphor, it's, it has meaning, and that's what's ultimately important. And this kind of message that comes across leaves really no room for anything in addition. It's just simply what it means to you. There are balls and there are strikes and there are nothing until I call them. The problem is this. The resurrection doesn't do either one of those. It doesn't sit purely in static history with what you can argue with the empirical data, with the apologetic, with the argument for why the history is true. And the resurrection also doesn't sit purely on the side of metaphor, purely on the side of meaning, purely on the side of whatever you decide to make it. The resurrection doesn't pit one against the other. The resurrection asks both sides, is this all there is? What kind of world are we living in where we only live in the data-driven, empiricism, rational, sensical side? And is this all there is that we just, doesn't really matter if it happened, it matters what you make of it. And on both of those, for both sides, the resurrection calls to both and brings them together. What God is joined together is a beautiful summary of both that it actually happened, that there's good arguments, that there's history, that there's data, that there's good historiography that we can do, and that there's beautiful imagery and metaphor and meaning and parable found. What God has joined together in this beautiful resurrection is that if you are only on one side or the other, God is challenging us to bring them together. And there are several people out there that you will hear and that you will read and they are going to be on news reports and History Channel and Discovery Channel that say it really doesn't matter that it happened. And the resurrection says, is, is that really all that matters? It challenges that thought. And then there are others, specifically on the Christian end, who are so driven by the apologetics, so driven by the argumentation, so driven by the rationale and the reasons that they forget that there's this beautiful mystery, there's this beautiful metaphor, there's this beautiful sense of ambiguous and flexible meaning that also comes with the resurrection. 
Um, I like what Yancey says here, Philip Yancey in his book, Rumors of Another World. Nature and supernature are not two separate worlds, but different expressions of the same reality. To encounter the world as a whole, we need a more supernatural awareness of the natural world. In other words, if you're doing the historiography, if you're doing the data, if you're doing the apologetic, see mystery and wonder and depth of meaning, even in that. What God has joined together, life and death. What God has joined together, the old and the new. What God has joined together, the facts and the meaning and the mystery, all brought together. There's several others, but I'll just give you one more. I think the other thing, the last thing that I'll share with you, that God has joined together in this beautiful story of the resurrection is the head and the heart. That which we think, that which we can know, and that which we feel, that which we sense. Now, the head and the heart have this very contentious relationship. They argue all the time. Your heart gets you into trouble. Your head is trying to get you back out of trouble. And most of the time in Christian circles, and especially at places that really pride themselves on being intellectual, there's a saying that actually exists in a lot of Christian circles, don't check your brains at the door. Which means that when you come and when you gather and when you engage with faith, make sure that you think critically, intellectually. It's okay to ask questions, and that's absolutely true here. In fact, we've done a ton of those seminars here. We encourage questions. We encourage debate, discussion, disagreement, all of that stuff, because the intellectual side is deeply important. Knowing, understanding, challenging, philosophizing about all of these things is deeply important. But I ran into this quote, don't check your brains at the door, but also don't check your heart either. There is something that God has done to bring both of these worlds together. And especially in a place like Silicon Valley, or actually, let's just use the entire United... Okay, let's talk about the world where everybody has a tendency towards one or the other, where we separate these two. What happens in the resurrection is the two of these come together. And I love this quote from Blaise Pascal, who is a brilliant French mathematician and philosopher. Brilliant guy. Intellectual. Academic. And sometime, uh, actually on Monday the 23rd of 1654, he has a non-intellectual experience. So much so that it moves him to write on a piece of parchment his experience. And he pastes this, he weaves this into his inner coat. And nobody knew it was there until after his death. And what does it say? The year of grace, 1654, Monday 23 November, Feast of St. Clement from about half past ten at night to about half an hour after midnight. Fire. Fire. God of Abraham. God of Isaac. God of Jacob. Not of the philosophers and the scholars. Certitude. Heartfelt joy. Peace. God of Jesus Christ. God of Jesus Christ. My God and your God. Joy, 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 tears of joy. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, may I never be separated from him. One of the most brilliant intellects of our time, or past time, having something radically shift in the heart, which sounds a lot like Luke 24, 32. 
Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Friends, we will continue to be intellectual. We're going to continue to be scholarly. We're going to continue to think deeply and critically about faith, about life, about culture, about the Bible, about scriptures, about God, about Christ. We're going to continue to do this. But let us also never forsake or never forget that there's something deeply moving about just letting the presence of God, the reality of Christ, move us in ways that words can almost never articulate. Again, in the words of Blaise Pascal, the heart has reasons which reason itself does not know at all. What has God brought together in the resurrection? These guys who are thinking deeply, trying to piece it all together, but yet we're also deeply moved. Deeply moved. That your heart, your passions, your soul is just filled and overwhelmed. That there is new life. That there, this world is completely different. That the things that I thought before do not necessarily hold to be true because of the resurrection. And I would say that the ultimate thing that has been brought together as a result of all of these things is that that which we believe to be of heaven, the fullness of life that God designed and desired to be, is now brought here to earth. And this, to me, is the ultimate picture of what God brings together in the resurrection. Not only the old and the new, life and death, the facts and meaning, and the head and the heart, all of that is summarized in the idea that this thing that we call heaven, the full presence of God, is now actually here on earth. And that is ultimately what God has brought together. Dallas Willard once said, the gospel is not about going to heaven after you die. The gospel is about going to heaven before you die. Because the presence of God, the reality of this world, bringing together that beautiful mystery that this world may not be exactly as the philosophers say, and the world may not be exactly as the apologists say, that somewhere in the mix of all of that, the resurrection brings it all together. And wherever you stand on one side or the other, it brings a challenge to all of us to say, Maybe there's more to this world, more to this life, more to this faith than I once previously understood. This is what I would call also hope. This is what they say, what we had hoped. We had hoped that he was the one who is going to redeem Israel. And the reality is, that is exactly what he does. And what was brought together was all of their hopes and all their dreams in this main story. To Mix holidays, if I could. The hopes and the fears of all the years are now met in Christ today. You know the phrase, what God has joined together? Let no one separate. What God has joined together, life and death, old and new, facts and meaning, the history as well as the metaphor, our hearts and our heads, let us not separate. All of these things have come together. I want to just invite you, because I've covered a lot of ground and there's so much more to talk about this story and what happens in the post-resurrection events. 
And there's thousands and, dare I say, millions of sermons and teachings that have been given. And there's more discussion to be had. But after we recognize that God has brought together all of these things, that we should not separate them, I want to extend to an invitation. I want to extend an invitation to all of you who are desperately seeking life. And you could be seeking life through career, through advancement, through money, through funds, through just simply the expression of your own gifts and talents in this world. And by doing that, you feel like you're gaining life. What God has joined together is life and death. So for those of you who are seeking life, there's an invitation to you to lay down your life, to sacrifice your life, to let go of your life, to discover a new life. Come, all of you who have experienced death, all of you who have experienced a tragedy on this earth, because God has brought together life and death, and death is not the final word for you. Death does not have the final say, because in that death, a new life emerges. That's why these flowers are representative. Out of the ground comes new life. So the resurrection invites those of you who have experienced death. All of you who are the traditionalists, who want to hold on to the past, who cannot let go of the history, of the ancestry, of the traditions, of the liturgy. The resurrection invites you to bring the old and the new together. And all of you who are progressive and innovators and want to leave the past behind and push forward into a new era and a new time and a new faith and a new season, which is happening in the Christian church even today, that people are starting to move forward. This is a new time and a new place. The resurrection also calls you, who are progressives and innovators, to hold on to that which has been there for thousands of years, to hold on to the past. Come all of you who are the statisticians and the historians and the data people who want to make sure that everything is exactly right and correct. For the resurrection calls you to mystery and metaphor and parable. And all of you who are fantastic storytellers, who could bring great meaning, who really are not all that interested in what may be historically true, the resurrection invites you as well to grab onto that which is real history, real scholarship. Come, all of you who are academicians and scholars, who spend time in textbooks and classrooms, you're invited to reach out past that which is in the head and reach deeply into what is in the heart. And for all of you who are the romantics and the idealists, who believe so much that this is fills you with so much joy and so much ecstatic experience, you're also invited to study, to consider deeply the history and the textbooks. In other words, as God has brought all of these things together, it means that there's space and there's place for every single one of you. There is an invitation for all of us. And because of Christ's death, his burial, his resurrection, and because of what this day means, every single one of us, no matter where we are on the spectrum, wherever we might be, there's an invitation to discover a whole new kind of world, a whole new kind of life. And that's exactly what happened to these disciples. They say, wait a second. I'm starting to learn. I'm starting to grow. And my life and my perspective, my worldview is now being challenged. Let's lean in and discover what this new world is. What God has joined together, let no one separate.
And let us be a congregation and a church and a people that keeps these things together. And as we keep them all together, I learn from you. You learn from me. We learn from each other. We grow together. We discover anew. Uh, a part of the story, a part of the history that I don't have, that I didn't have before until I met you. How does the resurrection and how does Easter meet you? How does it challenge you? How does it shape you, transform you? I want to be part of that story as well. It invites us all. Lord, you are alive and well. And that means you're actually loose in this world right now. Moving, active, and still transforming all of us, even to this day. Wherever we are, Lord, would you just meet us? Would you bring up new life within us? If we've ever gotten stale, cynical, or just downright disheartened, revive us, Lord. Bring us new life. And allow us to discover, once again, the beauty, the mystery, and the transformative power of you resurrecting, coming back to life, and bringing to us a brand new life. And we pray in your name.